Blog Talk Radio. This is the gist of freedom with Manisha Sinha, Draper Chair in American History and the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I will be talking to you every third Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Black History and Current Events. You can find over 500 archive shows of the Gist of Freedom on blackhistoryuniversity.com. I look forward to spending every third Saturday afternoon with you. Hello, everyone. This is Manisha Sinha again. Um, it is March 2022, and of course, March is Women's History Month. Um, and I thought we would take this occasion to talk about some current events, but also the long history of Black women's activism in this country. So let's begin with what I think is a very decision, and that is Preston Biden's pick for the Supreme Court, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Now, Judge Jackson is one of the most qualified candidates ever picked for a Supreme Court nomination. Her long experience in the federal district courts actually uh, outweighs that of nearly half of the current sitting judges of the Supreme Court. She is without doubt highly talented and extremely qualified. Um, And we can see already members in the Republican Party, especially those who belong to its lunatic fringe, who supported the January 6th insurrection, many of them, um, like Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, have started questioning her record and lying about it. They do not see this amazing black woman who has achieved so much in her life, uh, gone to the best schools, all on the dint of her own talents, uh, and whose uh, experience uh, and whose qualifications uh, put to shame people like Amy Comey Barrett uh, and others uh, who showed themselves peculiarly unqualified for the Supreme Court. Nothing upsets racists more than uh, seeing black excellence and, and seeing somebody like Katanji Brown Jackson. Now, as a historian, I want to tell you that this history of black women Uh, exceeding and excelling, uh, but also being extremely active in the abolition movement uh, and in the civil rights movement goes way back to the early modern period. We know there's a lot of speculation now about uh, Queen Charlotte, uh, who was King George III's wife, uh, whether she had African blood or was African descent. Um, Regardless of how that particular Uh, issue is um, resolved, uh, I should say that it was very much at this time uh, that black people started contesting their enslavement uh, in the British Empire. Uh, They were already starting from the 17th century in the British North American colonies, um, suing for their freedom, petitioning for their freedom, Uh, And this was uh, a kind of activism in which black women in particular took the lead. Uh, So long before the famous Somerset case 
in Britain in 1772 when um, uh, the Chief Justice Mansfield declared uh, an enslaved man, James Somerset, who had sued for his freedom, uh, he argued that colonial slaveholders could not come to Britain with their enslaved people and then force them to go back with them. Um, well, Mansfield is interesting because he had adopted um, a, a black woman, Dido, uh, and in fact, she's represented in a painting. And there was a movie actually made about her, just like the TV series Bridgerton has um, kind of a character, a queen based on Queen Charlotte, um, who, who is black and discernibly black. Uh, Queen Charlotte was seen as um, people did not usually remark on her color or race when she was alive, but a lot of people speculated afterwards that she had some African ancestry. Um, so Mansfield did have this uh, adopted daughter who was black, um, and um, she was his niece, and he, he adopted her after the death of her parents. And uh, he was involved in another case, the famous Zong case, which was also brought by black and white abolitionists like Olada Equiano and others um, who discovered that a British sea captain had basically thrown overboard his uh, so-called cargo of Africans um, who were suffering from disease. Uh, and he knew he could not sell them for a profit. So he simply murdered them all in cold blood. He simply threw them overboard and then claimed insurance for them. And that was the so-called Zong case, the Libre amongst abolitionists, because this case went um, in front of, of uh, Lord Mansfield too. Um, and uh, it was decided that this this captain, well, that he had committed murder. In fact, he was not indicted for murder, but he could not claim uh, the insurance. So there were many such cases involving slavery and the slave trade that were coming up in Anglo-American courts. And the reason why that is important is because English common law and Anglo-American jurisprudence gave certain rights to people, right? You have certain rights like trial by jury, um, innocent until proven guilty, um, and you know you you had certain civil rights and certain legal rights under British constitutional law, and later on in the American Republic, which was you know very much based on uh, British law. Um, so th this does come into conflict with the laws of slavery and the slave codes that are there, which are very draconian. Which made, because when the northern states after the American Revolution abolished slavery, they used the same principle to say that southern slaveholders couldn't just come into northern states and stay there with their slaves because northern states like Britain, um, well, Britain had not declared slavery illegal, but northern states had actually passed gradual emancipation laws uh, or judicial decisions, as in Massachusetts, where, in fact, African-Americans like Elizabeth Freeman um, and Quark Walker uh, had sued for their freedom, uh, thereby abolishing slavery in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in 1783. So this tradition of suing for your freedom is a very long tradition of black activism in which women in particular are at the forefront. 
And I talk a lot about this in my book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I look at the Somerset decision. I look at the ways in which black people are suing and petitioning for their freedom in the colonies um, through the revolution, fighting on both sides to win their freedom. Uh, and then after the revolution, they continue because to do so. Britain had no law of slavery the way the colonies did. Uh, and this is often seen as a free soil decision for Britain. Uh, it did not abolish slavery in Britain, but it just said that slaveholders did not have any of the legal prerogatives that they had uh, in the colonies. And remember, James Somerset was a man who had been enslaved uh, by a man who lived in Virginia and then who had uh, come to Boston and then had gone to Britain. And he had abused him horribly. Uh, Somerset, with the help of abolitionists, like Granville Sharp, who was his lawyer, sued for his freedom and won his case. Uh, and this case did have an effect in the colonies. As I said already, there were other cases in the colonies with people suing uh, for their freedom on various grounds, Christianization, uh, maltreatment, um, or uh, on, the, on the charge of man-stealing, which is condemned by the Bible, uh, that they had been unjustly enslaved. Um, so this tradition of suing actually was back in the colonies itself, but it alarmed Southern slaveholders who realized that they probably could not take enslaved people with them to Britain. And now this Somerset principle, this free soil principle is important. Um, now, with the colonies, um, they were subject to laws passed in Parliament. This was the king, the crown referred to not just the king, but the British Parliament that was sovereign. That principle had been established during the English Civil War uh, and after it uh, with the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Um, the colonies resented the fact that the Parliament, where they had no representation, uh, rather than their colonial assemblies, passed laws for them including laws uh, regarding taxation, whether it was the Stamp Act or the Sugar Act. Uh, there were many such laws on taxes. But one of the taxes that the colonial assemblies levied was on the African slave trade. And they did this for a number of reasons, and which were not exactly philanthropic. Um, they wanted to limit the number of enslaved Africans coming into British North America because they saw them as a source of rebellion, uh, if there were too many of them. Uh, and there were, in fact, uh, rebellions in colonial America fomented by enslaved people. Um, they also had a surplus, a second or a third generation of enslaved population, especially in Virginia, uh, where, which they wanted to sell. Uh, and so they didn't want the price of enslaved people to be low because there were so many uh, enslaved people being brought in from Africa. So they passed, uh, you know, laws that put um, duties and tried to restrict the African slave trade. Um, unfortunately, what happens is that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, what happens is that the British Parliament disallows these laws because they think the colonial assemblies don't have the right to do this. Um, so that is a matter of um, conflict between the colonial assemblies and the British crown, but it is not really over the morality of the slave trade. 
which is being condemned really at that time only by abolitionists, um, predominantly Quakers, people of African descent, other Protestant dissenters in New England. Um, but it is, um, uh, you know, uh, a minority position at that point. Uh, and uh, so when we look at the causes of the American Revolution and the ways in which the War of Independence unfolds, yes, slavery is involved in many instances, especially after Lord Dunmore's proclamation that offers freedom to enslave people if they would fight for the British. And many do, nearly 10,000 or a little over 10,000 do and, and win their freedom and migrate away from the United States um, winning their own freedom, going to Canada, and eventually uh, going all the way back to Africa. So, it's a, you know, if you look at the revolution and you look at the causes of the revolution and taxa- taxes and you look at the way the War of Independence unfolds, uh, you can find many instances where the issue of slavery is involved. But we have to be very careful uh, in making like these blanket or broad generalizations that one side was anti-slavery and the other was pro-slavery because that's not entirely correct. Uh, Enslaved people voted with their feet. They tried to fight for their freedom uh, during the American Revolution every way possible. Um, Gary Nash, um, the historian of the American Revolution, said that, you know, the biggest slave rebellion took place during the slave revolution and we don't know about it. Uh, all these um, uh, all these people of African descent who fought on both sides to win their freedom. And of course, one of the biggest results of the revolution was emancipation in the northern states. Uh, and it, even when these laws are passed because, you know, there are these pioneering abolition and manumission societies that are being founded, there are black people who are protesting on the ground uh, and, and using the services of lawyers and politicians in these new abolition societies to fight for their freedom. Um, you know, we can see that um, it's... Uh, you know, it's not as if emancipation just happens on its own. It takes a lot of anti-slavery activism by African-Americans and their allies to implement these gradual emancipation laws. So we know, for instance, we have always known, and I mentioned this in my book, The State's Cause, that Sojourner Truth, who had been enslaved in colonial New York, her enslavers sold her son away from her illegally because this was prohibited in many northern states because they saw that when they passed emancipation laws, uh, slaveholders, northern slaveholders, would try to get by these laws by selling their slaves down south. So they had to pass laws banning that so that people are not cheated uh, of their freedom. So that's what they did to Sojourner Truth's son. They they, uh, sold him down south. He was lost to her, taken to Alabama, and, and she sues her, her enslavers for doing that. Um, and she gets the help of the New York Manumission Society and Quaker abolitionist lawyers uh, to pursue her case. Now, everyone knew this story. You know, Truth recounts it, how she recovers her son, who even does not recognize her after so many years. Uh, and she's so grieved by that. Uh, but she fought. She fought to get her son back, and she got him back, right, uh, through the courts, uh, through implementing New York's emancipation laws, 
with the help of abolitionist lawyers. That's how emancipation really was implemented. It was by black activism. What's remarkable, though, is that those historians like me have always known about this case because truth recounted it. For the first time this year, those records were found in New York State and have been digitized. The actual proceedings of that trial in which Sojourner Truth won the freedom of her son. And this happened just now, like in 2022. And it just shows you this this sort of long history of black women's activism. And everyone knows about Sojourner Truth, you know, the famous Sojourner Truth, the abolitionist, the women's rights activist, um, the person who worked with freed people during the Civil War, the person who met with Abraham Lincoln uh, during the war. But we don't know this. We know this story, but it was not really highlighted in her life. And we forget that truth was enslaved in the North. Because I think they really, you know, the masses um, that dictate the history would much rather show black people running aimlessly in the woods as um, using the power of the pen and the power of words, the speech, the orators. So um, this... Um, well, the three yeah, abolitionist lawyers who are associated with that society help her. But, you know, you're right. I mean, that was the whole point of my book, The Slaves' Cause, in which I say that you can't assume that enslaved people do not have any political sophistication or that they are not aware of how to fight for their freedom, whether it's by running away, whether it's by using the law, or whether by petitioning. They use a whole range of tactics to win their freedom, and that's what constitutes abolition. You know, people forget that they made up the abolition movement that not only results in individual freedom sometimes for for people like Truth's son, uh, but also emancipation, right? Black Mm -hmm. people are the architects of their own liberation in many ways, both before and during the Civil War. And they have powerful allies and they elicit allies uh, Mm -hmm. in their struggle. And what's important to remember is by doing this, they are not just winning their own freedom, but they are also expanding the boundaries of American freedom and democracy. So you know, all the, the Manumission Society, tell us who um, comprised of the Manumission Society. Well, they were predominantly white Quakers. Um, what was ironic about the New York Manumission Society, unlike the first, the original Pennsylvania Abolition Society that banned slaveholders from joining them, they actually allowed slaveholders to join the society because many of the prominent elites, political elites in New York, were slaveholders. Also, we forget that there was northern slavery in the colonial era, so many of the prominent members of the New York Manumission Society um, like John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, founding fathers, push for emancipation is not coming from the elites, right? It is coming Mm -hmm. from the abolitionists. The real activist part of the New York Manumission Society are the, you know, the, the, the abolitionist lawyers involved in the society, right? Mm -hmm. They're Mm -hmm. the ones who are pushing uh, and, and winning the freedom of black people who are illegally enslaved. And they are the ones who are pushing the New York State legislature and emancipation law. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's important to remember, that that's the way abolitionists work. They work at the grassroots, but also through law and politics. And eventually, New York does pass a law in um, uh, 1799 that does abolish slavery. It's one of the last northern states to abolish slavery because there's a huge class of slaveholders in New York who resisted, like Sojourner Truth enslavers who try to get around the law uh, and sell her son to slavery. So th- these are stories that I recount in great detail in my book. Um, and if you're interested, you can always um, get it uh, from the Slave Scores, A History of Abolition, which is, you know, available as a paperback, but also as an audiobook and on Kindle. Um, but this tradition of, of suing for your freedom continues in the South and petitioning for your freedom in, in, in really the worst of circumstances. So um, if you look at, at the early American Republic and you look at the, the first uh, presidents of this country, they all belong to what is known as the Virginia dynasty. They were all Virginian slaveholders, right? Uh, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, uh, and when the capital of the United States was in Philadelphia, that was not only free territory, but it was also the center of abolitionist activism with Quakers and black abolitionists like Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who had founded the famous Amy Church there. And, and these men, Allen and Jones, with the help of Quakers like Isaac T. Harper, um, actually managed uh, to free many enslaved people uh, because they were in Philadelphia. Now, this proved to be a bit of an embarrassment to people like Washington and Jefferson, who had to rotate their enslaved uh, staff uh, from Philadelphia back to the South because in Pennsylvania, they had a law saying that slaveholders could sojourn with their enslaved people for just so many months in a free state. And after that, the enslaved person was allowed their freedom. And therefore, these presidents would rotate their slaves, right, so that they would not be able to take advantage of winning their freedom. Now, of course, we know that Ona Judge uh, did run away from Washington uh, and ran away to New Hampshire. And Washington pursued her all the way to New Hampshire uh, as president on the quiet, uh, trying to get her back. Uh, especially his wife, Martha Washington, wants her back as an enslaved person. And they, the president of the United States contacts the postmaster in a small town in New Hampshire demanding that owner judge be brought back. And this guy writes back to the president and says, no, slavery is not legal in New Hampshire, and we are not going to return her. And owner judge wins her freedom by running to a free state and wins the freedom, mind you, from the president of the United States. Washington is a bit of a complicated figure because when he dies, um, in his will, he actually says that uh, enslaved people, the enslaved people he holds, should be, uh, be freed. Now, he's the only one Virginian to do that. Jefferson doesn't do that. He only frees... Um, you know, basically uh, the, the, the enslaved people he had fathered with Sally Hemings. Um, Madison doesn't do that. Uh, Monroe doesn't do that. None of the slaveholding uh, uh, presidents and founding fathers uh, from the South do that. But, you know, Washington does do that. 
and um, he, he, in his will, the stipulation is that they would be free after the death of his wife, Martha Washington. Um, and Martha Washington is so nervous that the enslaved people will kill her to win, her free, win their freedom that she frees them. Right? Yes. So um, what struck me about Washington is, again, the complexity of the figure, right? So here he is, the relentless slaveholder pursuing uh, a young enslaved woman all the way to New Hampshire. And then, the, you know, he is, at the same time, by the time he dies, um, he probably realizes uh, that slavery is 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 uh, is not something that he would want for the republic. Now it's true that he took advantage of enslaved people throughout his lifetime. He frees them only on his death, but that is still something to be commended, and that is something that black abolitionists understood. Uh, so you have Richard Allen, the founder of the Amy Church in uh, Philadelphia, who delivers this beautiful eulogy on Washington, where he uses Washington's actions as the father of the nation to tell all slaveholders that this is what you should do. At least look at the example that Washington is setting for you. And you should be manumitting your slaves. You should be emancipating uh, enslaved people. So whether we see his action as late, as grudging, as uh, filled with conditions, the fact remains that none of the others did it. Now, Jefferson, for instance, did, didn't do it. And not only did he not do it, he also moved the capital of the United States to Washington, D.C., where slavery was legal right up to the Civil War. Slavery is abolished in Washington, D.C., which is the capital of the American Republic, only in 1862 during the Civil War. So, so look at this. The, the, the capital of um, a free republic founded on the Declaration of Independence, those ideals, uh, you could see the slave trade taking place there. You could see slaves being sold on the footsteps of the capital. And this enraged abolitionists who who began a campaign to abolish both the slave trade and slavery in Washington, D.C. Um, but you can see how uh, this issue was indeed very much alive uh, and really affected both the founding of the United States uh, and the ways in which even the highest officials, the presidents, had to deal with these issues of slavery and freedom, uh, which was the legacy of the American Revolution, a nation that was half uh, slave. Uh, and half free. Um, mm -hmm. Tobacco economy was a boom and bust economy, um, and the tobacco uh, planting was in decline in Virginia, and people thought, oh, this means that slavery will end in Virginia the way it ended in the North, but it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because Virginian slaveholders start selling enslaved people down south to the booming cotton kingdom. With the expansion of cotton, short staple cotton, into the Mississippi Valley, this is Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, all that territory open to slavery and cotton. Um, that's how they maintain slavery in states like Virginia, even though tobacco is in the decline. Um, mm -hmm. It's important to remember that uh, Washington you know, he sort of grows, you can see him as a provincial 
Virginian tobacco planter and slaveholder. But you can also see how Washington, when he takes over charge of the Continental Army, is confronted with free blacks in the in the Continental Army. He gets rid of them. He doesn't want enslaved people in the Continental Army. But then Lord Dunmore issues his proclamation inviting enslaved people there. And soon both Washington and Continental Congress change their tune. They allow free blacks uh, into the army again, and they also allow enslaved people. The famous Rhode Island Regiment made up mainly of enslaved people that actually rode into victory during the Battle of Yorktown, the decisive battle of the revolution. Yeah, so not just Washington, the, the American government and George Washington wanted the British to return all the enslaved people who had fled uh, and fought with the British um, after Lord Dunmore's proclamation, but also after um, General Clinton's uh, proclamation in South Carolina, Georgia. There were huge numbers of enslaved people who fought with the British to win their freedom. Uh, and, and Washington does demand their return, meaning their re-enslavement. His own enslaved man, Harry Washington, uh, runs away from him. A lot of the founding fathers lose their enslaved people. They're literally fleeing the founding fathers for their freedom. Uh, and Harry Washington is quite a character because he ends up in Africa where he leads a rebellion against the British colonial authorities there. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, and again, all this is, is, is in my book. But yes, Washington does demand the return of um, these enslaved, and the British refuse. They refuse to break, break pledge with the enslaved people who fought for them. Not so much because they're anti-slavery, but because they think it would be the bad thing to do. It would be like um, the dishonorable thing to do to return these enslaved people. And so many of these enslaved people leave with the British going on to Canada, uh, where they are treated, and um, that is where they, in fact, move them from Canada back um, to Sierra Leone, which is a British colony in uh, the west coast of Africa. Um, So, yes, that story is true, too. It is also true that um, uh, Washington... Um, never met Phyllis Wheatley, but Phyllis Wheatley, who of women to be ever published, but one of the first American women to be ever published, she had published her book of poetry, um, Poems Religious and Moral, in Britain in 1773. She had met with Granville Shaw, Benjamin Franklin. She was very well known as a gifted poet, gifted African poet, and she always claimed her African identity. You can see that in her poems. I talk about her a lot in my book, and I analyze some of her poems, um, and other historians and literary scholars have done that too. But I see her as very much part of um, the the abolitionist movement because she's using her pen to make a case for black freedom. And she writes an ode to Washington, which she sends to him. And he writes a very gracious reply to her because it's a, it's a very wonderful poem. But in that poem, she, she chides him for not accepting the services of black men in the Continental Army uh, and gently reminds him that he should be standing up for freedom because he's representing the revolutionary cause, the republic. And we, we know that they never met, 
but we know that Washington writes this very polite answer back to her. So he's exposed to somebody like Phyllis Wheatley. Um, his aide-de-camps are also Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence from South Carolina, who comes up with this plan for South Carolina to recruit enslaved people and then give them their freedom. Now, John Lawrence unfortunately died during the Revolutionary War when he was very young, but he's probably the, the only abolitionist, the only white abolitionist that South Carolina produced during the Revolutionary Era. His father was a slave trader, and most South Carolinians were very, you know, rigidly pro-slavery, and extremely so. Um, but you can see from the people who surround Washington that these were people of anti-slavery and abolitionist conviction. In contrast, uh, Jefferson denigrates Phyllis. He denigrates her, her gifts and her poems, and he's like, religion can make a person like Phyllis Wheatley, but she's not really gifted. And her poems, he says, um, are beneath criticism. And Mm -hmm. why would Jefferson put her down like that deliberately? And it's because Jefferson had this idea that black people were somehow inherently inferior to whites. So rich, and there is a new biography of hers that has Mm -hmm. gotten a lot of new material on her, there's mm-hmm. also um, a very good article written by my colleague at the University of Connecticut, Cornelia Dayton, who, looking through the court records in New England, found um, a lot of new information on Phyllis Wheatley in her later years when she was married to John Peters, um, mm-hmm. a black man uh, who was you know, known to um, uh, be a, somewhat of a lawyer and plead his own case. Um, and his own rights. Um, and we have found a lot of new material uh, on her later life, thanks to Nina Dayton's uh, digging up in the court records of Massachusetts, um, you know, details of Phyllis Wheatley's uh, and John Peter's later life. Of course, Phyllis Wheatley unfortunately died in 1784, very young, and died in childbirth, and her children died too. Her baby died too, and so, you know, the world lost uh, a genius by any standard. Uh, And um, we know that, um, you know, all this new material is coming out on Phil Sweetly, but I'm not aware of this. But you must realize that it's not just Sweetly. There are a whole lot of other black people who are writing at this point, uh, pamphlets, they are participating in the revolutionary pamphlet culture. Uh, another one is Lemuel Haynes, who actually served in the bat- Battle of Concord in Lexington, and he writes, Battle of Lexington, he writes a poem on that, mm-hmm. his participation in the Battle of Lexington. And Lemuel Haynes, of course, becomes um, a minister. Um, you know, he becomes a minister. He, he is a black man who ministers to a white church in Vermont. Uh, and now we have got also his unpublished writings against slavery. And he was a staunch Federalist and Jeffersonian too. But there, there are a lot of people like this that I talk about in my book, black men and women. Uh, and before Wheatley, you know, you have um, Lucy Prince, who's writing in Hampshire, Massachusetts, um, about Indian raids in Deerfield. Uh, so, you know, I think if you look at early black, print culture, poems, pamphlets, narratives, slave narratives of black loyalists who left the British, their experiences, precisely what you were talking about, 
attempts by Washington and others to re-enslave them at the end of the war uh, and how that creates a panic and fear amongst enslaved people who had fled to the British. We have a lot of documentation by black people who wrote uh, about their experiences, who wrote poetry. Uh, We have Phyllis Wheatley's letters that were published publicly uh, in New England newspapers. All through, mm-hmm. this would be like being uh, today like a social media celebrity, I guess. But right. her, her famous letter to the Native American minister, Samson Oakham, uh, in which she um, is, is sarcastic. She's like, uh, I would think that, you know, people fighting for, the, for their freedom would think about enslaved people and, and realize that the love of freedom also uh, exists in our hearts. I'm paraphrasing her. Uh, but yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, it's a very sarcastic comment on American revolutionaries who want to continue to enslave black people while fighting for their own freedom from Britain. So there's a lot, and I could yeah. just keep going on about it. But again, I would refer you to my book, The Slave mm-hmm. Cause, A History of Abolition, where you can read um, all these uh, different stories, um, especially in the first few chapters. But I do want to end this show on this theme of black women's activism, um, especially in the abolition movement in terms of petitioning uh, for their freedom and fighting for their freedom. Um, You can certainly see this with uh, Harriet and Dred Scott's case. We never think of Harriet Scott because the case that eventually went up to the Supreme Court just listed Dred Scott, but the initial case was uh, put by Harriet and Dred Scott and they did this in St. Louis because it had a track record of uh, granting freedom suits to enslaved people who had been taken to free states and kept there for a number of years. Um, what's interesting is that both Harriet and Dred Scott had daughters um, who had come of age, and they were clearly worried about their freedom and their future. They didn't want them to be enslaved, so they sue for their freedom, Right. Um, and they sue uh, their enslaver based on the fact that they had been kept in free territory in the Northwest for several years. This is where, in fact, Gret Scott met Harriet and married her, uh, and that on the basis of that, they should be given their freedom. In fact, Leah Van der Velt, who writes about Harriet Scott, uh, thinks that she was born free, actually, in Pennsylvania. and wrongly enslaved by her master, who was an army officer, uh, and then taken to this place. But in any case, they sued for their freedom, and they won their freedom in Missouri. But the enslavers appealed this case to the Supreme Court. (laughs) Excuse me. And in that famous case, we know that it's Roger Twaney, Uh, completely dismissed it and said that black people have no standing even to sue for their freedom, which is a remarkable claim because I told you that they've been suing for their freedom since the colonial era. So it becomes a lightning rod, the Dred Scott case of 1857, for various reasons. Uh, But, uh, you know, we don't think of Harriet Scott. Uh, We we mainly think of it as Dred Scott, but there are some very good illustrations of, in fact, the entire family that was done in Harper's, um, which was a prominent uh, illustrated magazine in those days. Uh, And in Harper's Weekly, you can see pictures. You could even Google it and see pictures of Dred Scott, 
Harriet Scott and their two young daughters, uh, who I think, um, uh, whose future, for whose future they they actually sued for their freedom. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, this was one of the stepping stones to the Civil War. And, again, it shows you, uh, in a way, how black activism, black women's activism, how the attempt to challenge slavery and win your freedom really does contribute to the coming of the Civil War, along with the fugitive slave controversy and other controversies that were based on on, on black people's activism. Uh, and, and suing for your freedom and petitioning for your freedom um, through the law uh, was just as important as even running away for your freedom and forming maroon communities in the dismal swamps, like you mentioned, or simply just running away to freedom, whether it was the North Indian Territory or further down south uh, to Mexico. Um, enslaved people were always looking for an opportunity um, to to vote with their feet to win their freedom, which they eventually do during the Civil War in defecting to Union Army lines in large numbers, um, and therefore beginning the process of emancipation during the war. So I'd like to just end the show. Uh, today we talked a lot about all these different forms of activism, but I was very happy that on uh, Women's History Month we could talk about this long history of black women's activism in this country and realize that um, a person like Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, stands on the shoulder of all these black women accomplished uh, writers like Phyllis Wheatley, activists uh, who fought for their freedom um, and the freedom of their families and their people like Sojourner Truth. Um, and we can see her at the end of that long line of, of Black women's activism. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, she will be confirmed. Um, and I wish that uh, the Republic today, who are certainly not the anti-slavery Republicans, the party of Lincoln anymore. They have become the party of the Confederacy. They're the neo-Confederates. will uh, take the time um, to actually think about this and vote their conscience uh, instead of appealing um, to the base instincts and to the racism of, um, of people um, who support their party. So on that note, I will uh, wind the show down and I will hopefully talk to you next month uh, again um, in, in April, um, more about current events and black history.